Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. I'm Rogerio, uh, Rogerio Meirelles Pinto. I'm a professor at the School of Social Work, and I am also Associate Dean for Research. So I have been doing research around HIV-related issues for um, many years now, probably around two decades. Um, what I'm mostly interested in can be talked about in two different uh, buckets. Uh, one is how evidence-based HIV prevention interventions uh, get disseminated uh, and also implemented at community-based organizations across the country. Uh, what it means is that we have created in the past two decades a large number of behavioral and cognitive uh, interventions that we offer to individuals, sometimes couples, sometimes groups of people, uh, to help them modify behavior uh, and become less vulnerable to acquiring HIV. So I, I think that that's a great idea, but I also think that in the past two decades, we could have used some of the resources and some of the information and knowledge that we have to develop more structural interventions, such as modifying how we implement those behavioral interventions, how we distribute them uh, across the country. So that's what I have been studying to the extent to which those interventions actually get implemented and disseminated across the country. And two, uh, I'm particularly interested uh, as to how cisgender women uh, and LGBTQ plus individuals face many barriers to accessing those evidence-based practices that we have created in the past uh, more than two decades now, including transportation-related issues, uh, prejudice in healthcare systems, uh, racism in healthcare systems. So those are the two buckets, right? I mean, a lot of interest in understanding the implementation and distribution of what's available uh, and how difficult it is for certain groups in the population to actually access what we have available. So my, my research follows a paradigm which is called community-based participatory research. Uh, the short version of that is community-engaged research. Uh, and it is something that I have been studying as to uh, the best practices of community-based uh, participatory research but also using the key principles and practices that we have developed over, over the past you know, many decades. What those uh, practices involve is the involvement and collaboration what, with individuals who can more directly benefit from the findings of any kind of research. So if one is studying, for example, the barriers to accessing a particular kind of study, uh, it is advisable that you include individuals who may not represent the entire community, but that they may represent the ideas and the sensibilities of communities. Uh, and to give uh, researchers a sense of what it is that they actually need, uh, it's very important to have research questions that are influenced by the ideas and the needs that community members have to share. Uh, it's one thing for a researcher to imagine, uh, even if it is based on epidemiological data, what a community may be facing, uh, and then to suggest to a community that they should be doing research on subject X. 
what happened is that many communities do not only face one particular issue uh, that they would like to see changed. Uh, and if you're thinking about health research in particular, the same communities that are, for example, facing high rates of HIV, they are also facing high rates of many other diseases and disorders, such as it could be high blood pressure, it could be diabetes. So what a, what a community wants you to research may change from one community to the next uh, based on how they perceive uh, their needs. It's not that communities don't perceive all of those issues as being important, is that they, they may prioritize those issues very differently, right? So understanding what the, those priorities are is also very important. And the only way you, you can do that is by including individuals who might be, for example, vulnerable for HIV infection uh, to participate in meetings and community collaborative boards where uh, their ideas and needs can be more uh, readily understood. And also, uh, it's very important to be listening to the voices of practitioners. And that includes physicians and nurses and social workers and anyone who might be available to implement some of the interventions that we have. So not only behavioral interventions, but medical interventions as well, uh, that might be pr protective in the case of HIV, or it may be preventive in the case of HIV and many other things. What I mean by that is that there is no intervention that does not require a practitioner to be implementing it, right? So understanding how they adopt a particular intervention is really very important. Whether or not just knowing that the, the, inter the intervention exists uh, if they actually make use of it. So just because a practitioner knows about a particular thing that can help a person or a population, it does not mean necessarily that they're gonna be using it. And just because an intervention exists, it doesn't mean that every practitioner knows about it, right? So understanding where they are coming from in terms of adoption and implementation is also very important because then we can have research questions that attempt to think about not only you know, the direct findings of the research, but ways that the findings of the research can actually get to the community uh, as a way of helping the community resolve issues, but also as a way to uh, let the community know that the findings of the research are available to them. Then the last thing that I say, I mean, one should always be doing transdisciplinary collaborations with other researchers who may have expertise that is different from mine. So I work with you know, physicians in Brazil and nurses in Brazil, and I work with public health uh, educators and, and, and researchers in the United States and uh, social workers in, in different professions. I think that a lot of my inspiration uh, for the work that I actually do um, comes from my own uh, gay and gender nonconforming identity. Uh, which has shaped in so many ways what it is that I study and how I study uh, the things that I actually do. So it's, it's part of my inspiration and commitment uh, as well. And in some ways, what I call moral indignation as to how uh, individuals from LGBTQ plus communities sometimes get uh, treated. And certainly uh, in the beginning of the HIV epidemic, uh, which you know so many people were left to die uh, completely disregarded uh, the conditions that they were living under. So those things in many ways shaped uh, what I do today. And I mean, I was very young when the whole HIV 
pandemic began and, and it was just like very um, incredibly important to me as someone who was identifying as gay and, and not quite sure about, you know, how to deal with my own gender identity. Uh, so it shaped my life completely from a very young age, like around my, my teens. And another thing that I have been particularly concerned about is uh, not only gender, but also racial and ethnic disparities, particularly those around HIV. So growing up in Brazil, I began to feel the effect of the HIV pandemic at a very young age. And then I came to the United States uh, after college. And, and then uh, I had to, to, to confront not only all the, the, the gay issues and gender issues that I had been facing in my own life in Brazil, uh, which was under a dictatorship, to come to the United States and really realize how intense the racial and ethnic uh, tension was in the United States, which of course, I mean, there is racism in Brazil and all kinds of the same things that we see in the United States, but it, it, it looks very different. Uh, and so to me, it was very incredibly traumatizing to redevelop my own understanding about race relations uh, in the United States. And I make sure to bring this because all the things that I studied from a very intersectional lens where, uh, you know, if you're talking about gender, you know, gender alone and one's gender identity uh, say a lot about someone. But when you begin to create the intersection of gender and say race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status, I mean, you, you begin to see a very different uh, picture. And I think that's where how those intersectionalities come together. Uh, and what it is, what it is important to to see, well, not necessarily to see, but what is it so important to to know at this point, right? So a few things that I uh, would say about Transgender Awareness Week. First and foremost, we need to think about the strength that it takes someone to be gender nonconforming or transgender, right? From the very moment that that person understands uh, the that there is something different from what it is that they see outside of themselves. Uh, and, and having to make sense of that uh, by and large alone, uh, because the majority of people who do not conform to societal understanding of gender is still live very individualized internal lives, particularly when they begin to think about uh, themselves as being different. And then it could get, a, you know, it could create a lot of confusion and I'm not talking about confusion in, in any disordered kind of sense, just like regular confusion that anybody may have. And so it requires a lot of strength to be able to identify oneself as being non-binary or being gender non-conforming or transgender. And as you begin to, to, to have a, a stronger identity and, you, and, and it becomes a little more uh, visible, that's when you begin to face a lot of problems because society, uh, is a still such that uh, does not imagine very much outside of the binary male-female, right? Uh, and so once someone comes outside of that binary, there is a lot of things that can happen. Transgender women, for example, face abuse and torture, which, you know, cisgender women, of course, face many of the same issues. Uh, but if you happen to be a transgender woman of color, and particularly a black transgender woman, uh, your chances of getting murdered 
are, are much higher, right? So in terms of your physical health, there you go. There's a very clear intersectionality that makes you more likely to be to be murdered. So of course, to maintain those identities clearly takes a lot of strength, which sometimes you may not have help from your family because your family may be rejecting the very identities that you're trying to understand and you're trying to incorporate within the self. And that, of course, that effort to go through, to go through life with a sense of rejection from the very society where you are uh, or from the geographic place where you were born or where you live uh, can create a lot of uh, mental health issues. Uh, so those mental health issues do not come from being gender nonconforming. They are coming from the rejection that someone who is gender nonconforming uh, finds in the environment. Uh, and sometimes it can be very violent in the form of legislations. Uh, one has a tendency to think about violence more as a physical thing, right? Uh, but when there is a legislation that actually takes away your rights, or it's a legislation that is no longer protecting you uh, against, for example, job laws, physical violence, that, that is to me legislative violence, uh, which has been perpetrated uh, throughout the history of the United States and many other countries, uh, of course. So those to me are more structural issues that one would need to be aware uh, this week. Uh, and hopefully, more than anything, what I would like for all of us to be aware is that uh, the lives of non-binary, non-conforming, you know, gender non-conforming individuals or transgender individuals, our lives could be a lot better if we could take care of the structural issues that actually make life very difficult, such as many of the ones I already talked about, you know, legislation, prejudice, and racism, uh, and many others. So I, I teach a, uh, a class in, you know, at the end of August, it's our in, uh, so all incoming social work students make a choice uh, to take a one credit course at the, you know, in the first week of class uh, at the end of August. So I have been teaching for the past six years, uh, a class on LGBTQ plus uh, issues, which is mostly an advocacy class. And so the question about allyship always comes up because the class is not only for LGBTQ plus identified students, but also for uh, individuals to consider themselves allies. And one of the things that comes up very often uh, is people trying to redefine what you know, being an ally is, right? And there are a strain of thinking, a way of thinking where allyship is something that it's received by those who belong in a particular population. Uh, some people believe that uh, one cannot just decide to be an ally and then now I'm going to be doing all kinds of things that will help this particular population. Uh, although someone can feel that way and do wonderful things, right? But there is a way of being invited into a, a community which makes the capacity of that person even greater. Because, you know, if it is an, a, a kind of allyship that actually develops relationships with people inside of the community, the chances are that one can do a lot more, right? And what are the things that one can do? Uh, one uh, that I can say very simply is the idea of understanding solidarity. Uh, you know, some communities, like, like I said before, 
uh, the LGBTQ plus community is intersected with, you know, a lot of issues related to gender, to race, racial identity, ethnic identity, and so on and so forth. So solidarity to all those groups, right? Because uh, sometimes people decide to be allies, but choose to be allies with LGBTQ plus individuals who might be white or those, you know, I, I think solidarity with all different groups uh, is one, one way to go. And then to think very specifically about from one's own perspective, how support could be offered. And that I mean individual level support, which is, you know, follows along the lines of emotional support, right? But I think that sometimes we need to be more specific and think about informational support. Uh, that are sometimes just lack of information that we need to have in order to move to the next thing. For example, you know, a legislation to try to understand the legislation a little better. So of course, lending uh, that kind of informational support is also very important. And concrete support, sometimes in order to be elected as a transgendered person, uh, one needs funding to do so, right? Sometimes if you, if you lack insurance, health insurance, uh, and if you do not have the means to alter your body, so that your body can be more, uh, can manifest better your gender identity. That can be an, an enormous problem for, for a lot of people. I, I published a paper many years ago that looks exactly at that kind of issue. Uh, what, what does it mean in terms of your identity if you don't have, you know, if you lack insurance that could, you know, help you buy hormones to, to modify the body and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it has enormous, uh, implications for someone's mental health and health as well. So I, I, I think as far as being an ally, there are those many different kinds of supports that one can, can think about. And at the end of the day is to develop long lasting relationships with individuals from those communities that the allies you know, care about, right? Uh, because longitudinal relationships can lead to much better outcomes for sure. As someone who was assigned male gender and sex when I was born uh, and uh, having lost my little sister when I was 10 months old, uh, she was only not even three years old, two years old. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about who she was and who I was, right? So, there, so my gender non-conforming uh, starts there uh, in trying to be the sister that was no longer there. Uh, and not necessarily understanding uh, any of those things. So, so I think the first, you know, why transgender women is because I have a lot of compassion for the, 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 the lives of transgender women. And more than anything else, uh, I am appalled by the treatment of society of transgender women, particularly women of color, right? Um, so that's where you know my my inspiration starts. Like I said before, uh, women in general in society face so many vulnerabilities. Uh, a transgender woman faces all those vulnerabilities and more. Uh, and if that transgender woman happens to be a woman of color from a lower socioeconomic status, uh, clearly life is going to be even more complicated. Uh, and so there's a lot of that one has to deal with in terms of one's own emotional and internal life uh, to understand, accept who one is. Uh, and then 
work that with the family, which is, you know, people who are the closest to you, if you have a family, uh, and if you are, have not been abandoned, I mean, there are many other diffi difficult situations, right? Not everybody has your typical family with mother and father and siblings. Uh, so I, I don't want to generalize too much, but um, after you resolve all of those things, at least you try to, you know, get some of those things uh, resolved in, in terms of uh, being not only accepted, but also being celebrated by those who are around you, then you have to face an entire society uh, where it's going to be difficult in terms of lack of jobs. Uh, you know, we still know that jobs available to transgender women uh, are much fewer than, than it is available to many other categories of people, right? Uh, the barriers that one may have to care uh, lack of insurance. And, and without you know, insurance and without care, chances are it's gonna be very difficult to create uh, the body that will be uh, the best manifestation of one's own identity. Uh, and, and, and the worst thing of all in all this is the violence that one has to be aware of all the time and the actual violence that one uh, receives those who have that, that identity, right? and having a legislation and a law and, and laws that do not protect you. I'm compelled by the lives of transgender women because my own personal experience uh, has put me in, in, in a position where I, 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 I'm very gender non-conforming and have always been and have faced many of the issues that I just disclosed. In the United States, it appears uh, I'm, you know, they're still counting votes, I think, is in some places, but I think at least five transgender women uh, will have been elected in 2020. And that makes an enormous difference in terms of how one feels about oneself, right? I mean, these are not transgender women who are being elected to, to become presidents, right? But if we go back to the, the meaning of Obama, when the first black president of the United States is elected and what it means to the populations uh, that uh, see themselves in his identity or akin to his identity, right? So I think uh, the first thing that happens when a transgender woman is elected uh, as a senator or as a, you know, a representative, be it within the state or nationally, uh, is this incredible thing that one begins to, to think about, you know, uh, I, it could be me, right? And, and that very simple feeling about it could be me already uh, can be very determining of someone's self-esteem uh, because it has to do with hope uh, and has to do with not feeling shame about being who you are, right? Uh, and it also, you know, it brings on the feeling of solidarity in terms of like being someone you can look forward to and someone that you can, you, you, you can see a future in that person developing to be something that you may not necessarily become, but someone who can actually represent who you are. This is, you know, Trans Awareness Week, that we have to have a, a week to remember uh, and to, to create visibility is in itself, uh, it's a great thing. But the fact that we need it is very problematic, right? That we have to stop at some point and say, oh, let's think about that group of people. It is at once incredibly important, and I think it needs to be here, uh, but also is concerning that we actually had to create this opportunity for us 
uh, to think about these issues, which I think we should be thinking about all year long. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the second one is that we do have a historic moment here where you know, non-binary and, and, and transgender individuals are being elected across the country. And, and, and those individuals will help us in many ways and they will bring us to more freedom, which is I think what we need to have more than anything else. Uh, and as of course, as a teacher and as a researcher in the University of Michigan, uh, I, I need to say that we need to continue to do as much research as possible to understand uh, the lives uh, and the beauty of you know, non-binary people and transgender individuals, not to, to understand and with the idea that we need to help them you know, because it's got to be a problem. Uh, but I, I think more than anything, there's just so much that we can learn from understanding the lives of people uh, that unfortunately we need to stop for a week to think about. Clearly non-binary transgender individuals, the whole complex LGBT, you know, the whole complex of letters, LGBTQ plus, clearly we need to find ways to, to celebrate uh, beyond just being, you know, uh, the research has to be more about celebration than it is about pathologizing uh, individuals. And as a teacher, of course, I mean, we need to bring these things up in the classroom. It doesn't matter what it is you're teaching. Uh, we need to be very aware of intersectionality. So no matter what the subject might be, we need to be bringing up the intersectionalities of our students in the classroom, of the staff across the university, of, of the faculty across the university as well. So all in all, visibility, awareness, and freedom. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.